0: Alive and kicking. On News Talk. Hi, you're welcome to the Alive and Kicking Podcast. I'm Claire McKenna, and coming up on this episode, Freediver Claire Walsh on how holding her breath taught her how to live life better. Psychologist Jen Martin on why she chose to specialise in vulnerability and how we can do that too. And Emer Daly will bring us the latest in health and well-being news, including a country looking for us to go there to learn how to be happy. So, what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Okay, I'm going to bring you the bad news first. I don't know whether you favour good news first or bad news first, but let's get the bad out of the way. As there is a teachable moment in there for me and perhaps by default for you. I deleted a folder by mistake off my laptop and it has been causing untold havoc in my working life. And in part, my personal life, as I'm really annoyed with myself, to be honest with you. I mean, at the time, I wasn't rushed I wasn't stressed, but I realise now that I was in autopilot. And I think when we do things many times, like driving is a really good example, after a while we can do it without really thinking. So I wasn't really focused on what I was doing fully, nor did I read what was coming up on the screen. I just clicked yes and did a lot of assumptions. And I permanently deleted a folder, which I'll tell you is called Claire Stuff. And let's just say it's full of stuff and permanently deleted it. So... The laptop shop here in Dublin have been very helpful and excavation is ongoing, but it is a reminder to me and to all to slow down, be present and at the very least read what is on the screen. And if like me, you have a subscription service for Dropbox or similar, which I do. Don't forget to put the stuff in there. It's just another one of those long finger jobs that we say, Oh, I must do that. Oh, I must do that. And then we don't do it. Let me be a lesson to you, my friends. So, on to the good news. I told you last week that I was going to start practicing the art of saying no. And I've said it twice this week. I have wobbled a little, unsure, am I making the right decision? But ultimately, I must admit, it feels empowering and really good to be making decisions based. On what I want and what's important to me. And often we don't even give ourselves time or a chance to work out what that is. So, where possible, go forth and say no. You can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com and let me know how you get on with that boundary setting. Now, Emer Daly of Daily Wellbeing is with me to give me a roundup of some of the week's biggest health and wellness news. You're very welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: Claire. You have a good one first, a good feel good story, because there's, you know, Quite a focus on negative news, so it's good they're bringing us some positivity. Finland is offering free vacations for people to come and learn how to be happy.
1: I know. I had to read that a second time when I first heard it. But yes, Finland is offering a free vacation for you to go and learn how to be happy in the Finnish way. So they've actually been the six, for six years in a row, they've been the happiest country in the world. And that's with the happiness, World Happiness Report. So Finland feel that happiness is a way of teaching a skill and it's a way of being. And they want to share that with everybody in the world at the moment. So they're asking you to come to Finland, they'll pay for the flights, the accommodation, but they want you to immerse yourself completely in this Finnish way of living so you can channel your inner Finn. See,
0: I always look at the Scandinavian countries and they always top the polls and then you hear from a societal point of view that they've got very high taxes but then like, Free child care, free medical expenses and it, it everything seems to just function better. And I wonder, does that play into it? But is there more going on uh, in their, uh, the way they look at wellness and, and well-being? Is there more to it than just how the society is run?
1: Yeah, well, it seems to be what's going on with their Masterclass of Happiness course. You're getting fully immersed in the lifestyle of a Finnish person. And there are things from being in nature, connecting with food that is good for your soul and your body exercising outdoors around their beautiful lakeland being in the lakes and doing like water sports as well totally immersing yourself in this what sounds like a really slow pace and relaxing kind of lifestyle which is a really really nice way to live and they're showing that by being happy and being nominated as the happiest place to be
0: so what about the free element why are they doing that what well, what what's the catch what do you have to do once you go on this free holiday
1: Well, essentially, they just want more people to know about how to live a Finnish lifestyle. So really, they do want to raise more awareness and Visit Finland have put together this entire package of a free holiday. There's two things that you need to do. You need to sign up to the application form, which is on their Visit Finland page. And you also need to do um, a short content piece. So this is probably... Some people might find this hard, some people might enjoy this, um, but they're looking for you to send in a small piece of content, preferably a reel, sharing something about you channeling your inner fin. And really that's just you sharing something that makes you happy, spending time with friends, it could be going for a walk, um, it could really be anything that makes you happy. But you need to create a small reel video, use the relevant hashtags and post that so that you can be in with a chance to be nominated.
0: OK, it's really clever. It's a really clever way to harness the power of social media, but also spread a really good wellness message. I love it. Let's move on to cold plunging. Um, People will be like, oh, God, no, not this again. Because sea swimming gets such a good and a bad rap. But there are so many benefits to us embracing the cold. Tell us a bit about it.
1: Yeah, I think it's something that either when you start doing it, you absolutely love it. Or if you haven't started doing it, you're like, how are people doing that? But cold water plunging is something that's gotten a lot more popular nowadays with celebrities, athletes, health trainers saying that they're feeling these benefits, which is really, really amazing. And they're feeling things like boosted mood, better immune system, deeper sleeps and even a stronger appetite, which is really, really good to hear. But it's something that can actually, you don't have to jump into the sea. It doesn't have to be cold water plunging that you need to start with. I think a nice way to kind of start and get these benefits is by even jumping in a cold shower in the comfort of your own home. Maybe five minutes is a bit of a stretch. But what I started doing was, you know, when you're standing out of the shower and you're waiting for it to just get that little bit hotter. If you even jump in while the cold water is coming down and wait for it to get that little bit hotter while you're standing in there, you're building up that tolerance of the cold water. You might even notice that you're standing under for a minute or two minutes. And it's really just getting yourself immersed in the cold water. And I guarantee you that you you will feel better. Um, You'll feel more awake. And whatever it is for you, there surely will be a good benefit.
0: And as well as the physiological benefits you mentioned, there is such a small celebration, but the small wins all add up because it's like something you think you can't do, that then you can. Because you know, sometimes you get in and the water's already cold and you you see it as a negative thing. But when you get in and say, no, I'm going to wait until this gets warm and you manage it and you kind of gather your breath, you're kind of chuffed with yourself. And it's nice. We need more moments in the day where we're chuffed with ourselves.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. I once heard someone describe their cold shower as the hardest thing they'll do all day. And You know, if that's a a good way to wake up and say, you know what, this is the hardest thing I'm going to do all day. Everything else will be a breeze. Everything else will kind of set you up for for just building your resilience for the rest of the day and kind of giving yourself that boost in the morning to allow yourself be the best version of yourself. So why wouldn't we do something that makes us feel that way? Now, speaking of
0: the shower, there is a trend on TikTok, the everything shower. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, the amount of power we're getting out of our shower from this session.
1: I know, yeah. The theme this week has obviously been showers, but um, TikTok has an everything shower that's trending at the moment. And really what this is, is a self-care, recharge way and an easy ritual to kind of work into your routine that's already being created. So an everything shower is doing what it says, absolutely everything in that shower, But taking the time to be in the present moment while you're in the shower, being aware of lathering in that hair mask into your hair, being aware of yourself and what's going on. It's not just about the washing of your body. It can be having a look inwards and checking in, how am I feeling today? Or how did today go for me? Maybe I had a really busy week. And it's also about everything that you're doing in the run up to this shower. So beforehand, you might be lighting a candle, playing some music, lying out that fluffy robe that you bought for yourself. And afterwards, taking the time to do your skincare routine that you might always be rushing to do, slapping it on your face, just taking a bit more time with yourself. And that's where the benefits of this practice is really coming in.
0: And what are people doing on TikTok? They're sharing little snippets of themselves in their everything shower.
1: Well, they're more so sharing the before. Some people are sharing the process in the actual shower, but it's and the afterwards. Sharing what they do, what's their thing. Some people might take to meditating afterwards or repeating their daily affirmations or journaling. And they're just sharing the trends of their own self-care rituals around this everything shower. And that's really where the trend is coming because people are saying that they feel more relaxed afterwards, their mood is boosted. And some people are even saying that they feel a sense of stress and anxiety leaving their body after this self-care ritual.
0: And I have heard a lot of people say that, that, you know, one of their tools with anxiety was to sort of change their energy, stand under the water, picture, you know, a kind of a change in mood and being washed away um down the plug hole and then come out, you know, fresh set of pyjamas or whatever it is. And that 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 would really, really help. But do you think there's a danger in these kind of videos that they put pressure on people to be doing all of these things? And in the end, that is kind of counterintuitive because we're like why am I meditating and why am I journaling and why am I just taking a shower instead of making it an everything shower
1: Absolutely and I think when something like a ritual or a self-care practice becomes a stress in our life or feels like something I need to fit into my life that's when you know there could be a danger here But as I said, the benefit in this practice is just showing up for yourself, being kind to yourself. It's not about the expensive lotions and potions you're putting on your body. It's just taking time to be with yourself. So you don't necessarily have to post this video and trend it all over TikTok. It could just be something that you're already doing with your day. Most of us are going to have a shower once a day, just taking a little bit more time before and after to be present with yourself and kind of encouraging yourself to just give you that self-compassion.
0: Yeah, in my course recently, my health coach course, um, one of our sort of, she was almost like a, a leader of sorts and she was talking about a client that she had and self-care was what she wanted to work on, but she was a busy mom of four. She'd gone through a really stressful separation and was working and they decided to start really small and they, after she would do the washing up, she would get hand cream and rub that in and be in that moment for the 30 seconds and that's where they started. I think people... Forget that you can really start small and it can have a huge difference. So people can try with their own shower and either embrace the cold, turn it into a moment of self care, and let us know how you get on. You can email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Emer Daly of Daily Wellbeing, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Alive and kicking on News Talk.
0: Now, Jen Martin is an accredited psychological coach, researcher, speaker and writer. She specialises in vulnerability through research with government ministers, international business and sporting leaders. She has become passionate through her talks and workshops in sharing the message of vulnerability and psychological safety. She joins me in studio now. Jen, you're very welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So before we dive into vulnerability, which I think is fascinating, you started in law. When did you make the jump to psychology and why?
2: Yeah, God, it seems like a lifetime ago. Um, I loved, I will say, I loved my studies in law. Um, but I suppose it was never really for me. I did have an aunt, I remember, at one stage saying, you should go into psychology. And I suppose it ju- I just took the long route there. Um, I made the transition very early on. So really out of the studies and kind of pivoted towards teaching. Teaching became training. Training became coaching. So it was a very kind of organic Um, unfolding but definitely took the long route to get to where I am now.
0: So when did vulnerability come front and centre
2: to the work that
0: you do and become very much part of the message?
2: So I was working overseas for years and I was working in a teaching and training capacity and I was working with leaders so they were the leaders that you mentioned there so different profiles kind of organisational type leaders but also in a political sense and I was helping them with their communication and I started to see patterns in them in that some of them were so willing to embrace vulnerability and others were absolutely not. So if you apply that to the linguistic context in which I was working with them, I would suggest, how do you feel about, you know, just putting it out there before you make that speech or before you have that conversation? Look, I'm not a native speaker. Um, And just say it, call it out and enter that moment of vulnerability. And some of them were saying, God, can I do that? That would be amazing. And then others were just... Absolutely not. I could not do that. So that really sparked my first curiosity around vulnerability. Like, oh, what's going on there? Why are some people willing to embrace that vulnerability, and why are others not? And that's that's kind of where it sparked
0: and what is vulnerability like at at, at its core? What is the definition of being vulnerable?
2: So vulnerability, I suppose there's a lot of misconceptions, but vulnerability is a psychological experience that we have. And so it's both cognitive and emotional. In that, in that emotional experience, we will have different emotions that will come into play and we'll also have an internal dialogue that's playing when we feel vulnerable. So it's a psychological experience that we have in different situations. Um, what's crucial about those different situations is that you can't control the outcome. So that makes us feel very, very vulnerable. So it feels risky, it feels uncertain, it feels emotionally exposing, but you can't control the outcome. And that's ultimately what makes us feel vulnerable. And what's interesting is, That psychological experience of vulnerability can happen in a whole host of different situations and it will vary from person to person. Like you probably don't feel very vulnerable doing this right now, but I do. Um, So the situations will vary from person to person. So what makes you feel vulnerable may not make make me feel vulnerable and vice versa.
0: And what would be some of the common misconceptions about about vulnerability?
2: I think the biggest one is that vulnerability is speaking your truth, um, which... It's interesting because to speak your truth may feel vulnerable, but the action itself is not the vulnerability. So I would always remind people and clients that vulnerability is a psychological experience that you have in different situations. And so you, what, you're, what you would seek to do is to train yourself to embrace that psychological experience so that when it happens in different situations, you feel better equipped, if that makes sense. Almost like if you're learning to, to read, you don't learn the book by heart. It's not the book that you're learning. You're learning how to read so that you can read in, in different books. And it's similar with vulnerability. So that would be a common misconception that it's speaking your truth. So vulnerability is not an action. It's a psychological experience that we have in different situations. That's definitely, I would say, the biggest misconception that I would come across. And when you say speak
0: your truth, do you mean you don't have to show all your cards, but maybe show one of them?
2: Yeah, Um, I suppose it depends on so many different factors it depends on different situations and and why you're being vulnerable and what why does this does the situation call for vulnerability so like with clients i would use a little formula called what i what i call bite so to bite the bullet so it's kind of a question should i bite the bullet so i would ask four questions before being vulnerable in a situation so b boundaries so what are my boundaries here if i'm going to share i for um intention so what's what's my intention in sharing like what am I what am I sharing for? Um T so timely, so is it timely or is it appropriate to actually share in this moment? Because sometimes it's not. And then the last one, E for expectations, is about kind of establishing, well, what are my expectations in this situation if I'm going to share? Because often we might not be sharing for the right reason. Um, and ultimately vulnerability is it's not about achieving an outcome or getting something. It's about learning to embrace this feeling that you have within you and yeah, leaning in. We were saying that earlier, leaning in.
0: And w- when you gave that example earlier of some of the leaders say or somebody was going to make an important speech and they're in a different country and you'd say why don't you start by saying now look this isn't my native language so I might make some mistakes. What's the benefit in, in doing
2: that? I suppose the like front and centre is connection and and relatability. So like if I come into a situation like this and you say, you know, I get nervous when I do these things, I immediately feel disarmed and I immediately feel like I can relate to Claire. Um And similarly for a leader who makes a speech and opens with that, you know, that kind of an opening, the person in the audience goes, oh, thank God, you know, like they're relatable. I can see myself in them. And so vulnerability is, I would say, probably the fastest route to connection between people. And it's so interesting, like my
0: husband had a job interview recently and they asked, like, what would his worst qualities be? And he was quite honest. And, you know, I was a bit, oh, God, you know, and he was telling me, I was like, did you say that? Okay, yeah, yeah. But I I kind of thought to myself, well, is that not better? Are you not better to be authentically who you are? Why do we have to put on this facade that we've got it all together all the time and we're absolutely perfect? Because who wants to work or be with that person anyway?
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, you want to work with someone who who's real and who you can relate to. I completely agree. So, but where I think you would probably come back to those four questions, wouldn't you? You know, so should I share, should I put all my cards and all my weaknesses on the table and all my imperfections in the job interview? Maybe not all of them, but you might kind of quickly run through those questions and say, you know, what feels appropriate? What's timely? What are my expectations in sharing this? So just running through those questions will establish you know, which things should I share and to what extent?
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask. Like, where do you draw the line? How do you... How do you know? I mean, there's times in a bank queue I walk away and think, oh my God, that was a lot of oversharing. Why did I tell that person my gynecological issues while we were just waiting at the ATM? There's really no need.
2: So there is a fine balance, there isn't is. there? Yeah, there is. I think I think there is an instinctive, intuitive part of us that we can learn to trust in terms of how much to share. But um, yeah, I think running through those little questions will definitely kind of keep you on the straight and narrow as to what to share. And I don't want to be kind of formulaic if that's even a word you know to put a formula on vulnerability because at the crux inherently what's, you know the, the key thing about vulnerability is the unknown like I do not know how this situation is going to pan out I don't know what the outcome will be I don't know how this thing that I share will be received um, and so in so much as we love a formula you know you can only control to a certain extent because vulnerability is about letting go of, letting go of control so what is your
0: advice for people then? Is it does it become a muscle that you can flex and after a while it's just happening and you're you're free to be your authentic self that little bit more and yet you've you've got some sort of control. There's a there's yeah. a consciousness that comes to it.
2: Okay, I love even your phrasing of that question, is it a muscle? And this is something that I would say. So um I've I've shared before that I have a friend who talks about, you know, mindfulness and in relation to mindfulness, um, you're not trying to clear your mind, you're trying to catch every time your mind wanders. I think vulnerability could be approached in the same way. So you're building this muscle, you're learning to know your triggers, you're learning um, how, how my vulnerability manifests because it might manifest very differently in me, both physically, so I might have a different physical reaction in my body when I'm vulnerable than you. Um, I might also learn to catch the stories, the old stories, the ego stories that I have when I experience vulnerability. Um, I might have a different emotional experience. So you're training yourself, as you said, like a muscle to, I suppose, manage that experience of vulnerability better and better and better. But caveat to that, it's always going to be hard. It's always going to be uncomfortable. And if it's not uncomfortable, it's probably not vulnerability, and how will you feel
0: then if you're embracing vulnerability more in your life? How how different will you feel
2: in situations? Hmm. Um, I suppose it's about alignment ultimately. So when you have a feeling, when you have this kind of wave of vulnerability wash over you, we all have a choice point there. We can lean into the vulnerability or we can lean away. And I think the more we lean away from vulnerability, the more we're leaning away from real life and difficult moments and the opportunity for more connection. And so ultimately that creates a disconnect. And so the opposite of that is leaning more into the vulnerability. And the more you do that, you're going to feel more connected. You're going to feel more aligned. There's a lovely um, theory. I don't have a visual, obviously, we're we're speaking. But there's a lovely theory called self-discrepancy theory. And it talks about the three selves that we have. And we have this ideal self And we have this ought self, this person who we think we should be. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is close the gap to become our authentic self. And I think the more you choose to lean in, despite it being hard, despite it being uncomfortable, the more aligned and and connected you'll feel both to yourself and to others. And there is
0: an openness to this, isn't there? I mean, I know you work one on one with with clients, but also in the corporate world, because Our leaders going forward are going to need a very different skill set to the ones they needed 10 years ago. And I mean, your workshops and people are interested to hear about vulnerability with diversity and inclusion, with wellness, all of these things that we're looking at in a, in a corporate world as well as in, in, in a personal life.
2: Completely. Like if you look at kind of articles that are out there in, out at the moment, you know, things like Forbes and, you know, New York Times and all of that, you know, you see very often these headlines, you know, the number one leadership skill is, and it's often empathy or, you know, something to this effect. But I mean, I'm even seeing increased interest in vulnerability. And you mentioned diversity and inclusion. I personally believe you cannot have diversity and inclusion or you cannot have diversity and inclusion policies that don't place vulnerability at the absolute centre because, I mean, diversity and inclusion is, again, inherently vulnerable. If I ask somebody to have a conversation about, you know, about gender or race or ageism or any facet of diversity and inclusion, we're terrified to get it wrong. Like, we're so afraid to say the wrong thing, to be cancelled, to offend somebody. And so those conversations feel utterly vulnerable to us. And so for organisations, rather than solely focusing on policy, which is very, very important, you also have to equip people with the skills to learn to manage vulnerability. Otherwise, what they're going to do is they're going to learn from a script to have the perfect conversation. But there are no perfect conversations. It's far better to equip people with skills to have real conversations that produce real outcomes. I mean, inclusion. We have to be able to enter those conversations, and they're hard. Yeah, God, I think your work is absolutely fascinating. I have
0: loved this conversation, this real conversation. People can find out more at jenmartinpsychology.com. Jen Martin, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. Alive
0: and kicking on News Talk. Now, my next guest, Claire Walsh, is a free diver, year-round sea swimmer, and teacher of breathwork courses. She was the first person to represent Ireland at the Freediving World Championships in 2019. Her book, *Underwater: How Holding My Breath Taught Me How to Live*, has recently been published and has already made it into the top ten. And Claire Walsh joins me in studio now. Claire, you're very welcome.
3: I'm delighted to be here.
0: I loved your book. I really, really did. This isn't a book about free diving. No, this is a book so. about life.
3: Yeah. Life, a, a, a quite an ordinary life. You know, I, I grew up in Kildare. Um, I'm not, you know, wildly talented at, you know, this one thing that I decided to pursue and make up my lifelong ambition. I am moderately talented at a few things. I have a, quite an ordinary life. Normal, whatever that means these days. But... I think through luck or choice or a, a variety of opportunities, I've done some pretty extraordinary things. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's worth it. That's worth sharing. And it's also worth setting out, or, you know, sharing it for people to show that, you know, they can do the same. They can make decisions to change what they feel might be mundane, boring, normal, whatever word you choose and make it something extraordinary.
0: And you go right back to the start. I mean, you didn't grow up beside the sea, obviously, nope. in Kildare, but you were really instilled a respect for the water and respect for the sea by yeah. your dad. Yeah,
3: like I think, you know,
0: water, whether it's sea or pool, is a really, really big part
3: of our childhood. You know, in, in I think it's the second chapter, I just talk about <laughs> a typical Irish day on the beach So there's chances are it's going to be raining. You know, you're making sandcastles in your wind cheater. You're in and out of the water. There's sandwiches and there's sand gritting through your teeth. And you love every second of it. And it's funny, I've had lots of really nice feedback from people. They totally relate to it. They even had the same windbreaker.
0: We all had that windbreaker. Exactly,
3: that blue (laughs) windbreaker with the rainbow (laughs) stride three quarters of the way down. You know, it's so relatable. And for my family, you know, summer holidays were in Ireland for a good part of my childhood. And, you know, there's one thing which I which stood out when I was writing it was that I don't remember ever being cold. You know, here, now, you know, it's 16 degrees on a summer's day and you feel cold and you put on your jumper. I don't remember being cold. You're having so much fun. You're doing so much. You're in and out of the water. You're building sandcastles. You're burying your, your sisters, whatever you're doing. It is just the most pure form of fun. And that is all done on the setting of the beach, beside the water.
0: And that is the essence of life that we start to forget as we get older. We don't play enough. We don't lean into fun. We're conscious of I'm too cold. It's too windy. It's too that instead of really being in the moment. And you have come back to that in so many ways. With the free diving, but tell me a little bit about the dip in your twenties because people can hear already. You were a very vivacious character. Mm. You were interested in the arts, working as a puppeteer. Yeah, so you were certainly ones. up for, you know, stepping outside the norm and yeah. and having fun. But there was there was a lowness to yeah, life in your twenties. I, I
3: wouldn't even call it a dip. I'd call it a plummet. Um, name it like it is and I don't even think it was just confined to my 20s. I've just turned 40 and certainly I don't feel that same emptiness but there are there are the telltale signs of maybe this will always be here. So what it is, is essentially depression. I've been given a couple of diagnoses which I mention in the book but now I don't identify too strongly with them because essentially the symptoms are the same and You know, you identify them, you have an awareness and then you learn coping mechanisms to deal with them. Hopefully healthy coping mechanisms. Um, But I, you know, I suffered with mental illness severely in my mid to late 20s and I call them the bad, blurry years. I don't really remember specific events, you know, when I was writing about it, I had to put a chart, a timeline up on the wall in front of me because it all merged into one. There was a hospital admission, I think six weeks uh, shortly after my 26th birthday. And then coming up to Christmas, I came out for a few weeks in January and then went back in for another six weeks. And the following, I suppose, year was you know, you get somewhat institutionalised. I remember coming out and waking up, having nightmares. I found it really, really hard to adjust. So that was kind of 26, 27, 28. I don't think it... I don't want to use the word stopped. I don't think it improved drastically until my early 30s. So that was quite a long period of being quite ill, actually. Quite ill behind doors. And... um quite performative outside doors or, you know, you know, in public, shall I say. Um, whether that was professionally, through teaching, I, I taught gospel choir. So you're standing up in front of 60 people, um, barking instructions, uh, bringing them in on time. And then there's the social element of that, which was terrific. Also, I was performing in Lambert Puppet Theatre, dealing with the public, talking to kids, playing. Oh, my gosh, it was incredible. It was It was a playground for the inner child, for want of a better phrase. It was absolutely fantastic. But I suppose what I found difficult to understand at the time, and it's something that I really wanted to get through in the book, is what can coexist with that playfulness, that sense of divilment that I think I have quite naturally. What can live beside, alongside it, is this gaping emptiness and this feeling of not being good enough. And that's actually really hard to say out loud. Now I think my language has changed a lot. And I would I would never say that out loud to myself because words are really important. But back then not only did I say it to myself, but I believed it to be true. And I remember talking to family members or friends and, you know, they said, God, but you were in great form on Sunday. Were you not enjoying yourself? <sighs> And I have to try and explain. But I did. I loved it. But when I went home, there was a totally different set of emotions to greet me. And it's kind of living. I spent, you know, 20s and early 30s living in that duality. And that takes a lot of energy. And I think that's something that a lot of people will relate to, unfortunately.
0: I think they will because you're right there's so many stereotypes around mental illness Mm. or depression that you just go around feeling sad all the time and your story and and how you write about it in the book is a real testament to we don't know what's going on in people's lives truly and You spoke more about the the emptiness, the numbness was Mm. even more frightening than the negative feelings. And I think even if people haven't had a diagnosis or that it wasn't a a depression, I think there's lots of people because you talk about not being able to get out of bed some days, phoning in sick, then dragging yourself you through the next day with that. and I think there's loads of people who are just feeling like life isn't working out the way they expected mm. and they're just sort of trudging through it so I think people will identify with with that on on many levels so what was the turning point that made you consider going traveling
3: there was a couple of turning points uh, one which is I suppose the start of the book is 2014 and how I was living so I describe. I think it's the first chapter. I describe being at back home with mum and dad. Now mum and dad are incredibly patient, but there's no getting away from the fact that you are an adult living in other adult's house, and you know your your patterns of living don't necessarily fit together anymore. And it is it's it's like squishing a jigsaw that used to work perfectly, but now the edges have become a bit frayed and they don't slot so easily together. So it's back living with mum and dad. I was single and probably had been for a couple of years. I was working, like I mentioned, for Lamberts. Um, I was teaching movement, running gospel choirs, uh, teaching drama. So my work had me geographically all over the place and mentally probably as scattered. In comparison, so this is early 30s, my colleagues, friends, peers were buying houses, um, meeting their partners having their first children, going back to college for their second career. And, you know, you can genuinely be really, really, really happy and really proud for them because, you know, you've seen their journey too. But there is that part that of you that just thinks, I cannot get my stuff together enough to tick one of these boxes, whether that's a relationship, whether that's career or or you know owning property which you know is a really big thing apparently so when you when you set your when you set life out as this kind of checklist these shoulds and I think you mentioned that earlier on when it sh- it isn't working out the way it's supposed to when you set out that checklist and you're not ticking any of those boxes how can you not feel like a failure you have to like, you know, but there's a chapter called Nothing Changes. If nothing changes, you have to do a full turn and find a whole new direction because by these standards, you are failing. You're not meeting them. So you need, you need something else. I needed something else. And at the very the beginning of the book, all I needed to do was to breathe. That's what I needed to begin with. I needed to breathe. I needed space. I needed space from my own head. I needed from the expectations that I had that I felt I felt family or friends and society had rightly or wrongly I just needed to breathe and I'm not talking about you know yoga or something quiet and calm I kind of wanted to kick down the walls I wanted space so I went off traveling so that was the first turning point but in the book there's lots of turning points And that was something I felt really passionately about you know, documenting because it's not just in my experience it's not just been making that decision once and then it all falls into place. It's turning up and making that decision again and again and again and again. So the book starts in 2014. I went travelling. A really big turning point is the end of 2018. So it was November. I was living in A really quirky, to use a kind word, house share. There was no sense of autonomy. It was really bizarre. I had burnt my leg really badly, so I was was injured. And then a friend of mine passed away in a tragic accident. And before her accident, I remember feeling really, really low. And I describe it in the book. I'm wandering around. The morning she actually passed away and I hadn't heard yet. I was wandering around the apartment and I remember catching myself in the mirror. Mum and Dad were coming to pick me up to bring me over for Sunday dinner. And I remember I caught myself in the mirror while getting dressed and I thought, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what I meant by that. I haven't picked it apart too much. I don't think I was planning anything, but I do remember thinking something has to change this isn't living, this is existing and it is excruciating to live like this and shortly after in that day uh, my friend passed away so that was a really, really difficult time I think there was quite a deep depression as well as grief and shock and everything else that comes with uh, such a tragedy but shortly, shortly after uh, I turned 36 around that time and I... I was sitting there. I had cups of tea all around me, you know, half drank cups of tea, biscuit wrappers. I was still in my PJs, probably had been for a week at that point. And it is like a picture in front of my eyes. I I can see like a coffee stain on my lap on the grey tracks of bottoms. And I remember thinking, enough. Nothing changes if nothing changes. So something has to change. And that day, the change was, I'm going to shower, And I'm going to put on fresh tracksuit bottoms. Now, the next day, that change might have been something else. And then I build on that. But that moment was, okay. I need a project. I need something to bring me forward, to move me forward. Uh, That's something that would take care of my physical health because I needed to do quite a lot, but also my mental health. And that project (laughs) was representing Ireland in the freediving world championships, what a project!
0: What a jump from changing your tracksuit bottoms. Yeah, I know. Yeah,
3: there's, <laughs> there's quite a leap in between us.
0: And freediving was something you discovered on your travels. Yeah. You would watched like local people diving right down, and really appreciated the freedom right. of that. But it was sort of like things you, people throw their hat at. They, you know, paraglide, yeah. they scuba dive, and you were yeah. trying them all. But describe to people what freediving mm-hmm. is, and 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 what it sort of did to your soul when you saw it happening.
3: So freediving is the sport of holding your breath underwater, and exactly like you said, I was trying everything: scuba diving, paragliding, the lot. But freediving, it, I think the word the words autonomy, strength, and resilience always come up into my head when I think about freediving, and because of my experiences, because of. My history of mental illness and my perception of what that meant, I thought it meant I was weak and negative so suddenly i'm i 'm doing this sport, this activity that that demonstrates quite clearly a strength, a resilience, and an autonomy between my body and my mind. It was so empowering, and you know it 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 gave me it gave me back that sense of ownership I often didn't trust my mind because my thoughts had been so spiralling and suddenly I learned that I didn't have to shut them down for things to work, that I actually could embrace it, could look at what I was thinking and without judging it, that's the big part, without judgment, just observing and bringing that sense right down into my body. It really helped me bridge a disconnect that had existed out of fear I was afraid to match those two things up, those two things being my mind and my body. So there was a massive disconnect. But freediving through breathing, through all that preparation you do to hold your breath, it just bridged that gap in the most organic way I
0: could have ever imagined. And you can hold your breath for five minutes and 59 59 seconds, seconds. which is... Not quite
3: the six minutes,
0: yeah. I know, but why are you saying the negative part? Well, we're still on the, you can hold your breath for five minutes and 59 Mm. seconds. And you have to stay calm. And I love hearing you speak. I've I've listened to lots of your interviews about that peace and that calm and all those thoughts that pop into your head, you know, about should I have lunch? Am I okay? You know, all of those things that you have to mentally overcome to stay calm and, and, and stay stay diving or stay yeah, still.
3: It's exquisite. There is no other word for it. How often do we, not necessarily empty our mind, but how often do we sit with our thoughts without our phone in our hand, without going down a rabbit hole of what I need to do, what I should have done, you know, all, all those those thoughts that we have on a daily basis with nothing vying for our attention other than the present moment. I know I don't. I don't do that enough. But when you're freediving, whether it's lying on the surface or going to depth, it's not like you don't have a choice. You do choose to be there and to be in that moment. But when you do, when you buy in, when you are there fully in that moment, you know, <laughs> it is nothing short of magical and even now all, all I want to do right now is book a flight to warm water and go back to it you know I miss it, it is, it's a part of me you can still do it here in Ireland but I suppose my associations are in warmer waters in places I've been uh, where I've spent a long time you know focusing to be able to do that in the morning um, not, not necessarily dedicating my life but certainly clearing space in my life to meditate, to journal so that I don't bring those thoughts underwater, to stretch, to be kind to myself, to fuel my body properly. When I'm living in Ireland and going by day to day life, I might be lucky to hit two of them. But when I'm away specifically for freediving, they become a focus. And obviously there's a payoff to those things like they are the pillars of self-care, you know, sleep, wellness, mindfulness. And then when you take that underwater, that's the reward. That is
0: the reward. And it's such a good metaphor for life because, you know, unless it's unclear to people, you're literally holding your breath. So there's no oxygen Mm -hmm. tank on the back. You go all the way down. You can go down to 59 metres, metres, which is such a long way. And so many things can go wrong. Like even with your experience at the championships, you came to the top and you blacked out, which people can do. Because I suppose to stop oxygen in the body, all kinds of can things can go wrong. Yep. Things can things can happen. Mm. So if I was to free dive, I feel all I'd be doing is concentrating on what could go wrong. I don't think exquisite would be front and centre in my mind, but that Give is a me metaphor hour for hour. life.
3: Give me an hour. <laughs> I will get you we'll there. We'll have to do that. We'll, <laughs> have to we'll have to try it.
0: We'll have to try it in a pool one of these days as you one would, of my out and abouts. I promise you, you would surprise yourself.
3: I have no doubt whatsoever you would be Gobsmacked at what you can achieve.
0: And that's what it is. When you focus on the positive and you believe in yourself mm. and you bring in the tools and you overcome the challenges, what you can do is just incredible. What you have achieved mm. is incredible.
3: Belief is an incredible thing, but I think you hit the nail on the head at the start of this. Play. And that's it. For me, it's a playful exploration. And when I lose that sense in my ordinary tasks. There's, there's, there's something more that, that becomes missing, that, that goes missing. When I approach something with playfulness, ah, sure, look, I'll just give it a go. I'll see what happens. And that's not putting myself down as to what I might achieve. But there's a, there's a curiosity. I want to know, okay, if I hold my breath for two seconds longer, what happens? Ooh, that's an uncomfortable feeling. Oh, that's an uncomfortable thought. Okay, hang on. If I pause and I don't follow that thought, what happens you know, it's a far more compassionate way of approaching things. It's a far more playful way of uh, approaching things. And it's certainly, when I've applied that, I go much further than when I, than when I go when I have a massive expectation on myself. Mm. And it's a lot more
0: and this is why it's not about free diving, no. even though it is. It's about how to live life. Um, COVID kind of messed a few things up. It obviously stopped yeah. the competitions and you got COVID and have mm-hmm. long COVID yourself, which has affected you physically. But you do plan to get back and compete in the water.
3: Yeah, I, like I don't know if I'll compete. Um, I, I did go travelling. I went out to Dahab. I was in Dahab this time last year. So I was in Egypt just before I started writing. And actually the book ends on that trip. Um, and I think something happened there. Again, I had no expectations. I didn't know how I would be in the water. I didn't know if my lungs would be able to tolerate it. I'd, ha- I'd had medical checks before I went to to get the all clear. But I didn't know how I would fare. And in that, something shifted. I think mm, my intentions we're purer, if that makes sense. So competing is is absolutely terrific and to represent your country is something I'm very, very proud of. But last time I was just so grateful to be able to still do this sport that I love. And in the months or year beforehand when I thought I might not be able to do it again, you suddenly realise what you'll lose. And I wasn't thinking about national records. I wasn't thinking about competitions. I was thinking about losing that connection with the community all around the world. That one thing that we all share, and that's a love of the blue. And that was was what left me feeling bereft. But the realisation that I will still be able to do it in some capacity... It was just so joyful and it just made me look at the sport differently. I imagine, I hope freediving will be part of my life for years and years and years to come. In what capacity, I'm not sure. But it doesn't mean that I can't lie in my bed before going to sleep, practising breath holds, connecting with my breath and dreaming of that moment again in the blue.
0: Well, we'll all be there with you right (laughs) behind you. I really have a feeling you're only getting going with what you're going to achieve in your life. I'm a massive fan of you and the book. It is called Underwater, How Holding My Breath Taught Me to Live. And it is available now. Claire Walsh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, Newstalk's health and wellness show. If there's ever a topic you'd like covered on the show or you'd like to comment on one that has already been on, you can always email kicking at newstalk.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would so appreciate if you would rate, subscribe and share with a friend. Alive and Kicking
2: on News Talk.